Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the March edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and the economy today. Bob, how's it going? Doing well, Sammy. How are you? Pretty good. I feel like we've recorded maybe seven to eight versions of this podcast where we talk about the Fed and inflation, the markets, and now we're going to record another edition where we talk about the Fed, the inflation, and markets. Um is that the is that the story? Is that the case? I mean, are, are, is there is there more to say, or are we just kind of muddling through this time period where we need to see how markets shake out and and how inflation goes and what the Fed ends up doing? Yeah, I think that that's the case. Inflation is critically important to the financial markets, to the economy. Um, it's not just some little side story. It, it's we're seeing heightened inflation that that we haven't seen in about forty years and. Um, navigating through the, this economy is, is, is difficult. Um, so it, it's definitely a story. And um, as I mentioned to you, as you know, I was in California last week and uh, studying up on this a little bit. Uh, so I think we, we can talk about it today, but hopefully it, it does uh, become the past and we, we get back down to a more normal 2% level um, soon. So what's been interesting is January was very strong in the markets, which we talked about last month. And then February not so much. A February swoon is what people are are calling it. And then lately, the markets have been, I would say, steadier and, and more resilient. So, you know, one thing that is a little bit unique uh, it, from my vantage point that I wanted to get your perspective on is it does seem like given all the concerns and the Fed is hawkish and the Fed is going to raise rates and inflation's not great and we may have a recession, et cetera, et cetera, the markets seem very resilient or surprisingly re- resilient. Are they Are we whistling past the graveyard here or are there reasons for this resiliency, Uh, assuming you would even agree that they have been resilient? Well, to start the year, they were. But uh, yeah, February has been a little rocky and um, there were some somewhat concerning data points that came out um, in February uh, relating to heightened inflation and a strong jobs market. Uh, The unemployment rate is now down to the lowest level it's been since 1969. At 3.4 percent, and um, markets been expecting to see that number actually go up, not see unemployment go down. And when you have a, a very strong jobs market that um, can lead to higher inflation, not not disinflation, like the Fed's trying to accomplish. So, just seeing um, the data kind of point in the wrong direction in February did lead to a bit of a sell-off. And any new data points in March, or are we left with the the February numbers at this point? February numbers at this point. Um, February inflation um, report is coming out and jobs. I think jobs, uh, February unemployment is this Friday. That'll be a big one. And then I think it's next uh, next week is February inflation. So um, within the next week, we've got two big numbers coming out. So what did you learn on your trip to California, Bob? Yeah, so I was out there for uh, DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, has a CIO form for chief investment officers of some of their largest clients. And uh, it was in Palo Alto because they had Professor John Corcoran join. 
John is a fellow at the Hoover Institute, which is kind of like a think tank and also a fellow um, researcher at Stanford. Um, also a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research, used to be a, a University of Chicago finance professor. And recently, he's been doing a lot of work on inflation. He just published a book that's uh, almost 600 pages um, on inflation, and it's geared towards academics. He's, he basically said, don't read it. I'm not trying to sell it to you. Um, <laughs> this is for uh, academics because we don't know what causes inflation. And when you think about that, yeah, you have, uh, I know our listeners can't see your puzzled reaction. We, we don't know what causes inflation, and we don't. Um, there's been some work on it. Milton Friedman, famous economist, won a Nobel Prize in the 70s for his work. Um, and, and his equation is money supply times velocity of money equals change in price. So basically how much money is out there times velocity, how quick people turn it over, how quick they spend it equals inflation. So as you have more money, you have higher inflation, or as people spend more, you have higher inflation. And um, Professor Cochran was saying, Milton, I love Milton Friedman, but he's wrong. He, he has a different view. So his view is um, relates to, he calls it the, the fiscal theory um, of the price level. And it basically takes the dividend discount model for stocks, where you value a stock based on the present value of future dividends. And uh, so as the change in the price level is to an extent a discounting mechanism, inflation of uh, government uh, deficits or surpluses. So it's looking at um, government um, fiscal actions. So running out of deficit and building up debt leading to higher inflation. So when you kind of unpack it a little bit and look at um, what's been going on um, through COVID, uh, the government uh, basically created about $5 trillion of stimulus of deficits that um, were distributed through various programs. And his theory is that that $5 trillion of new debt leads to inflation, as opposed to a $5 trillion increase in the money supply. But isn't um, it the same thing? I mean, not to, I guess, I'm not going to read the 600-page book, so please just tell me to be quiet if you want. But isn't deficit spending and you know borrowing to spend the same thing as increasing the money supply? It's just more money in the system. So what's what's so unique? So perfect question. That, that, that's the exact right question to ask. Um, and where, where the test comes in is because either way you, you get inflation, whether it's because I gave you $5 trillion or I created $5 trillion debt, you have inflation. So he and Milton Friedman would agree you'd have the same outcome. His difference is take it to an individual level. If I give you $1,000, but then I went into your IRA and withdrew $1,000 of government bonds, would your spending change? And Milton Friedman would say yes, because I increased the money supply, the cash. He would say no, because I paid for it by taking the bonds out. So say that one more time. The government gives you $1,000. Okay. But they also go into your 401k and take out $1,000 of government bonds that you have saved. Okay. So the net wealth effect to you is zero. Yep. You just have more cash. Okay. Is that an inflationary action? Probably not. So that's what he would say. That's what his theory says. It's not because it's not creating debt. The money supply, people would say it is because you have more cash and you're more likely to spend the cash. So 
Where, where it gets to a, a little bit is um, a concern about the amount of government debt that's outstanding, $30 trillion in government debt. And when you look at that, plus um, higher interest rates, um, as interest rates are now in the fours and um, you know today as we're recording this, uh, the Fed funds terminal rate where markets pricing that the peak of um, the, the rate hikes is now approaching 6%. Um, as you get up to those levels, um, the interest cost is, is quite high. If, if the government has to roll debt, if we see levels in the five and sixes uh, on 30 trillion in debt, you're looking at you know one to $2 trillion just of interest expense. And that, that's pretty steep to put that into perspective. Um, personal income tax receipts are in two and a half trillion. So he's concerned about um, the level of debt deficit and then what happens at the next uh, crisis, the next recession, the next time we need another $5 trillion bailout. Um, you know, the sun's shining on the economy right now with unemployment being low. We should be running at a surplus. And instead, we're running at a trillion dollar deficit right now. So, so in his framework, though, Bob, does that mean the Fed really isn't the institution that should be combating inflation? Does he think there's anything that the Fed can be doing about it? Yeah, the, the, that's a good point. And he thinks it should be joint um, action. He wrote a, a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed that there should be a consumption tax right now, which to me makes perfect sense. You, you want to slow down spending um, by having a consumption tax, because sales tax, um, that goes towards paying down debt while you know, discouraging people to, you know, buy a second home or buy a new car, you know, put the deck on the house, doing those things, um, adding tax to it, which helps improve the government's balance sheet and discourage spending, to me, makes a lot more sense than raising the cost of borrowing for the government. So let me push back on this one a little bit, because I've been, you know, in my career, somewhat frustrated by the deficit debt worries and the angst and hand-wringing around it, not from a political standpoint, um, but more because it led people to be pessimistic about markets and miss their fair share of, of returns. Is it a little convenient that you know we've reached this tipping point where inflation was next to nothing and then it spiked at nine and he's pointing to you know five trillion of COVID related spending that happened right before it? Because we've been deficit spending and and you know building up our debt for a long time, and if he was out kind of touting these theories, you know, for the last thirteen years, he'd have been wrong twelve out of the the thirteen. So is is his view that there's just a tipping point that broke things, or is this just a little bit of hey, I've been saying something's going to happen, and it finally happened. Now people are you know inviting me to conferences. Yeah, it. Uh, he, he must have received that question from other people because he had a slide on that with the okay. timeline of when he started writing his book. Yeah, the book, the first draft of the book was um, complete before inflation started even rising in 2022. And the intro talked about, well, we're not seeing inflation anywhere. Here's what I think about. Uh, okay. Here's my theory. Um, but now that it, it actually is playing into it, he's I think being invited to speak a little more and getting more attention. So as a chief investment officer and you were in a room with other you know successful chief investment officers of large firms what did that presentation tell you uh, what what did it do to influence your investment outlook I think there's two general takeaways from it um one is it's that that first point that that um, gave you the puzzled look that we don't know where inflation comes from 
and it is still um, it's complicated and it's not as easy as oh fed just raise rates to five percent and that'll take care of it um that there's a lot of animal spirits involved as some people call it emotions um and um a lot of complexity so um to not be overconfident and just we'll just lay on this plane at two percent and things will be fixed um and we're seeing that right now as, as the Fed's talking about raising rates higher and, and for longer. Um, and the second is just when you think about allocating, um, having exposure overseas to non-US equities, which we do. Um, but that is one area where, you know, if his concerns do play out, you'd have a weak dollar and um, foreign investments would probably outperform. So. so- Okay, that's so that's that's helpful. That's actionable, and we've been talking about global investing uh, for a while. And so, is there an opportunity now, basically, to see whether his theories can be proven correctly? So, I mean, basically, what I'm saying is, if the Fed does raise rates, which it has been, sorry, if it continues to raise rates and keeps rates elevated, but we see no change on the fiscal revenue generation side, and inflation improves dramatically and gets down to the Fed's targets in a time period where they're thinking it will get, does that somewhat debunk the, hey, this is what causes inflation and this is how to fix inflation narrative? I think it w- you would have a very good um, case, yes, that, okay. that um, come to debunk his uh, theory. I imagine he would have a comeback, but I, I think that that would be tough to, to argue. But in any event, you need to be aware longer term about the impact of debt and and deficits for a variety of reasons and you need to diversify globally uh for the the the, the reasons that you you kind of walked us to towards the end of that exchange yes how about fixed income does this have any impact on on bonds or how you would invest in bonds you know i mean with with fixed income it gets to the um you know, risk of rising rates as um if inflation isn't brought um, under control. So the, the thinking of extending duration, we've increased duration closer to market, but we're still a little under. Um, and as we're seeing rates rise this year, um, right now that that's um, helping on a relative basis. So um, it, it does, uh, I'd say support not going too far out in duration. Um, because rates may rise if there's a yeah. if the market's underplaying how long this inflation story could continue. Correct. Okay. And rates have been going up as you as you mentioned. Can you walk us through a little bit why that would be and and what the implications have been for portfolios? Yeah. So why rates have been going up? It it gets to um, the inflation not coming down as much as the Fed would like and the jobs market being stronger than the Fed would like. And the tool that they are using is raising interest rates. So they're just going to have to raise interest rates um, higher and higher and higher for longer and longer and longer until they see a tick up in unemployment and inflation, um, disinflation, you know, inflation getting back down to around the 2% level. And it's been stubborn. So that, that that's it in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, what what else is on your mind as it relates to portfolios and investments in what's already been a busy year for you? Um, I mean, in, in general, the, we've been doing a lot of um, work on different vehicle types. This gets in the weeds, but mutual funds versus ETFs, properly managed accounts, 
um, talks about an exchange fund as an investment option. Um, and then within bonds, also um, taxable bonds versus municipal bonds. Um, so those are some of the things we could talk about if they're of interest. Sure. Yeah, I think um, just looking at uh, at vehicle, uh, you know, choice, your approach has been, you know, the most important thing is the investment strategy and the vehicle of choice is, is secondary. What do, you, what do you mean by that? And how is that influencing your thinking in terms of how people should be allocating amongst mutual funds, ETFs, separately managed accounts, or, or other uh, uh, approaches? Yeah. So I guess just to step back, um, different vehicle types, you have mutual funds. Most people are familiar with, with mutual fund. Um, one of the um, drawbacks of a mutual fund is they uh, can make capital gain distributions typically at year end. So within the fund, if the manager's trading stocks and sell stocks at a gain, they have to make a distrib distribution to investors and that's taxable. So it's, it's tax inefficient. ETFs work are similar to mutual fund, but they work with um, what's called authorized participants to rebalance the portfolio. So they're able to really through a loophole get around um, the, the issue of making a capital gain distribution. Um, so when compared to mutual funds, they have a, a tax advantage. Um, and we have been using more and more ETFs for taxable investors. So that, that's a trend that heritage clients have seen. And it's something we're working on. And we're talking to managers we work with and encouraging them to launch ETFs if they don't have ETFs already. Um, so we're doing more and more on that front. It is an advantage, but we're not, if, if there's a great strategy in a mutual fund, and uh, I, I guess just stepping back, which what there's, um, while there's a nice tax advantage for ETFs, you don't see as many active managers launching ETFs. One of the reasons is they have to report their holdings daily. So there's full transparency. So these managers think that they have you know, this great research that leads to owning 30 stocks or so and have to tell the world every day what the, those 30 stocks are. Um, other investors could um, basically follow their trades. You know, with a one-day delay, you could copy the portfolio for free. Sure. Uh, that's one drawback. And a second is they can't close the fund and restrict flows. We talked about this at the, that conference. Um, you know, the firm ARC, run by Kathy Wood, got into some trouble. They launched an ETF, and I think it grew to like over $30 billion, and they couldn't close it, which they should have. And as a result, they were owning well north of 10% of many companies as retail investors were just flooding into the fund. So, so investors may not be aware of why that is important to you as a chief investment officer or other chief investment officers. Closing funds, closing vehicles, managing a reasonable capital base, you you want to see some funds not get too big because what? Because as if you get too big, say, say you're managing a $30 billion fund, if part of your investment approach, say, involves buying small companies, companies that are under a billion dollars and aren't very liquid. So if you want to buy, you know, $30 million of a billion dollar company, a 3% ownership of the company, that doesn't do the math on the fly, that 3% that ownership of the company is only 1% of your fund and doesn't move the needle. So you want to be able to be of a size where you can implement your strategy still in a meaningful way without moving markets. And that, so that's one drawback to the ETF. So on the plus side, it's favorable for taxes on the um, negative 
gives investors full transparency, which a lot of managers don't like and they can't control flows. And then the the last type of structure um, is separately managed account. So it's an account where like in a mutual fund, you own the stocks and an ETF, you own the stocks, but you just see the one name. Um, but a separately managed account is where you actually own the underlying stocks. So the manager is trading the stocks in your account for you. One type of separately managed account that, that's getting popular these days is called direct indexing. So that's where you say to a manager, um, I want to own the S&P 500, um, like that index, and they'll buy 500 stocks for you, or they'll do a what's called a sampling approach where they'll buy 300 stocks. Like they may buy Coke, but not Pepsi and Costco and not BJ's, things like that. So um, you get the exposure and you, you get basically the, the exact return to the index um, rolling in 300, not 500. So that's something that as technology has improved, it's becoming more um, implementable for clients with minimums in the like 500,000 range. A couple of advantages of that are on the tax front. It'll, it gives you great control for taxes. So you can, at the company level, um, you sell your losers for tax loss harvesting. Um, so in that example where you buy Coke and not Pepsi, well, if markets go down, sell Coke and buy Pepsi. And you just book a loss, a loss for taxes and your exposure basically didn't change. For those charitably inclined, you can um, donate uh, the most appreciated stocks to donor advised funds. And for those with uh, investor preferences like ESG, um, if you want to be very specific, um, you can implement that as well. So you can customize it in many different ways uh, based on um, different company characteristics that you're looking for or not looking for. So the landscape is evolving or, or, or changing, I guess, as more of these direct index approaches come into play and more uh, strategies are available through ETF format and you didn't say this, but the mutual fund vehicle is, you know, tried and true. And there's um, a lot to like there as a manager of a mutual fund compared to those other things. Where are you thinking is the right profile for certain investors to be between those three uh, options? Yeah, it, the, the preference, or the, the benefits for ETFs and direct indexing over mutual funds are mainly around taxes. Okay. So to... Um, simplified a little bit in retirement accounts or tax exempt, tax deferred accounts, nonprofit accounts. That's where the mutual fund's tough to beat. One of the beauties of the mutual fund is it executes at net asset value at four o'clock every day. So you put the order through and you get great execution. Um, ETFs, you're dealing with bid ask spreads and um, without taxes being an issue. So then um, focusing on taxes for clients who are in taxable accounts and tax sensitive um, within stocks, um, the ETF vehicle is preferred over the mutual fund, all else equal. So we're, we're doing our best to own more ETFs there. Um, direct indexing um, can be a, a good option for US equities for clients who are in a high tax bracket, have um, large capital gains, especially if you have capital gains from other sources. Like if you're uh, selling a business and have a eight-year earnout where you're looking at six figures of capital gains every year for the next eight years, having a direct indexing approach paired with that can be nice. Um, or for someone who wants a real customized um, approach around ESG, this is another case where you really want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of what 300 US stocks are you going to own. Um, you have that control with direct indexing. Makes a lot of sense. It's a good deep overview of of the more 
um, uh, common uh, vehicles that that you can utilize in publicly traded markets. And you said your team is spending uh, some time on this now. Uh, is that because from an investment standpoint, things haven't changed, even though the markets have seemed volatile and we had January, which was different than February, which is different than March and different than December. For the most part, your outlook on the markets hasn't changed and you're just waiting for things to play out? Um, it's more, it's just, it's, it's, it's important. Uh, heritage, every detail matters. And this is, you know, get into the weeds of, um, of something that matters. So um, that that's, um, I mean, we did recently reallocate our portfolios for comfortable with their allocation. So um, there's some of that too, that, that um, it's something to focus on. It just, I was looking to improve. And this is one area where um, we think we're, um, I think we're on top of it and the market needs to come to us a little bit. That's where we're mm-hmm. working with managers on launching products here. So we're, we reallocated our portfolios for the most part in December yep. and the outlook that drove that hasn't evolved. It's, you know, the same outlook three, three months later. What are you most optimistic about in markets today or as an investor today? I think it's foreign markets, overseas markets. Uh, the valuations there are attractive. Um, so seeing that um, we have allocations and where you know, those portfolios are trading in the, the low double digit price to earnings rate ratio, like 10 to 13 times, th- that's a good level to be investing. So the, I think those markets are due. The U.S. has outperformed foreign for a while now, and we're seeing that starting to turn. And I think that that's very solid positioning. And what are you most pessimistic about or most concerned about as an investor? I'm, I'm still concerned about U.S. growth, U.S. unprofitable um, growth, the, the companies that um, I mean, so I just, growth, growth stocks in the U.S., not the growth of the U.S. economy. Correct. Yeah, and and not growth like a Google or Apple, but um, you know, I saw something like DoorDash and the their earnings and revenue over the last uh, five years, and it's just every year the revenue goes up, but their losses are just greater and greater and greater. I think they're losing like over a billion dollars. It's like it's it's convenient for the customer to to get you know a burrito delivered to your door, but if they're losing a billion dollars. That you're doing it that's not sustainable so um, investors just in these businesses that um, aren't making money and aren't going to be making money anytime soon um, amazon got away with it for a long time and it's worked out well for them yeah. but in general it's not a good business model and uh, there, there's still a lot of them out there okay that makes a lot of sense and i wanted to get your perspective on an investment related question that has been coming up more and more and it's because the world has changed around debt and interest rates. So, you, you know, prior to 2022, there was a lot of cheap, virtually free money out there, right? Variable rate loans were very low. Mortgage rates were in the twos. Car loans were very attractive. And, you know, people were going through, if they were allocating capital well personally, they were going through this exercise of, I'm going to take out low interest debt because I think my long-term investment portfolio will not have an issue beating that, you know, low hurdle whether it was 2, 3, 4%, whatever it is. Well, now you fast forward and, you know, that's changed completely. Um, you know, prime is in the sevens, I I believe, and mortgage rates are not that far behind. I don't know what car loans are doing. I haven't bought a car in a while. 
what would you advise people now when it comes to that hurdle rate of what you should be doing, making a, an extra debt payment if their rates are in the sixes or sevens or uh, you know, not and continuing you know, to invest and pay down the debt on the predetermined schedule? Have things changed in your mind? Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's a good question. Um, one thing I'd look at is is it tax deductible or not, and that gets on what type of loan is it. Like a car loan's not, but a you know mortgage um, depends on if you itemize or do the um, standard deduction. But if you're itemizing and it's tax deductible, and look at your tax rate, you know, in, in my mind, I would use about like a five percent hurdle rate. And so if it's tax deductible and you're the loan is six, but then the effectiveness of it, depending on your rate, might be more like a three or four. But if you're if it's not tax deductible and you have debt at six plus percent, I would be looking to pay that down. So mortgages still maybe not yet, particularly if you're itemizing. The other thing is as rates go down, which hopefully they will in the future, you'll have the opportunity to refinance that mortgage to a to a lower rate. Right. But you, you know, consumer related debt where you're not getting a tax break and you're in the sixes. In the sevens, you know, your advice is pay that down. Um, you could earn more than that in your portfolio, but you're going to pay taxes on those gains as as well. And the hurdle rate is definitely not where it used to be. Yeah, and it, it's it's like a risk free return. Do we expect say seven eight percent out of stocks? Yes. Is it risk free? No. Is debt at seven percent paying it down? That is like getting a risk free seven percent return. Okay. Yeah, the world is changing. Deductible, so then it's more like a four percent return. So that that, that is the, the a big question, um, is it a tax deduction or not? I feel like the world has changed so much with those decisions in just a, in just a year. Yes. So I know you're not reading the 600-page treatise on inflation. Are you reading anything interesting uh, these days that you would want to recommend to our listeners? I haven't picked it up, but um, one guy who I respect a lot um, reminds me of you a little bit. He, he's a JD <laughs> and CFP, recommended a book that he gives out to clients called The Coffee House Investor. Okay. Um, said it's a great. He said his mom can read it in an afternoon, and it's a great like um, educational um, investment book. So, you know, share that with the audience. I, I might pick it up. Uh, I've personally been reading about real estate, just an area that always has interested me. Just investment uh, real estate, commercial real estate, or all of the above. Yeah, okay. Different books on investment real estate. Um, we have a number of clients, and it's a common situation for us to see clients who have investment real estate. And hey, what do you think about this like rental property? So just getting more familiarity with, with that that market. Great. Well, Bob, first of all, flatterly will get you everywhere. So thank you for the kind uh, words. I will check out the Coffeehouse Investor. And uh, if it lives up to the, the hype, I definitely uh, will share it as a recommended book through the Wednesday reading list at some point. Thank you so much for this conversation, Bob. I think our, our uh, listeners will get a lot out of your overview, some of the you know industry feedback that you're hearing. Uh, the understanding that you shared on the different investment vehicles and how you would um, incorporate some of that information that you've been gathering into actionable portfolio steps. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Sammy. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com 
Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.